Well, Vince Lombardi, you know, the famous Packer coach, in his biography about Vince and Marie moving to Wisconsin, it says this, Vince's wife Marie could not suppress the tears when her husband steered their two-tone Chevy toward the turnpike to begin their long trek to Wisconsin. Was this the beginning of the end? Her 12-year-old daughter sobbed behind her as they approached Milwaukee. When they approached, the scenery changed dramatically to white on white as they looked out in disbelief and despair. <laughs> Marie recollects we were fine as we drove around Chicago, and then it got silent as we headed north and saw the snow. We were going into a deep depression. Marie was thinking, where is Vince taking me? I do not think I want to do this. What is the furthest you have ever felt away from home? Was it moving your stuff into your dorm room? That job that might have taken you away from your hometown? Going overseas for the first time. Maybe it was a place not far away from home, but an environment so far foreign to you, an environment that was different than what you had experienced. Maybe you have a longing like many of us to find a true home, and you still feel like you are not at home anywhere. Well, these are the feelings these are the experiences that will be resonated with the children of Jerusalem as they go in exile to Babylon. Psalm 137 talks a little bit about their feelings, a lot like Marie's feelings moving to Wisconsin. In Psalm 137, it talks about these experiences of these people from Jerusalem, also called Zion. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then the psalmist asks a great question, a question we're going to be asking as we go through this book of Daniel. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So, questions for you as we go through this book and this morning. How can we find peace in a hard environment? How can we remain faithful in a world contrary to what we believe? These are the questions the book of Daniel is going to get us to try to answer. So let's look together, shall we? Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It's printed in your worship guide. Please pay attention as we look at God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
with some of the vessels in the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. The word of the Lord. Well, you're just joining us. Welcome. We're glad you're with us. You've come at a good time as we start this book of Daniel. And we're going to be going through it all the way until the new year. It's a time of history in the 6th century BC that the people of Judah are sent 500 miles northeast to a nation called Babylon, a kingdom. It's what's classically known as the exile. The book covers 70 years, and it gives us nine events. Some would say just nine days in 70 years of Daniel and his friends. Chapters 1 through 6 are narrative. Stories very familiar to us if we've grown up in the church, like the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then there's chapters 7 through 12, which many times the churches don't actually give us. And these are things about the future. Vivid images, beasts, horns, kingdoms represented through animals. This is what's classically called apocalyptic literature. If you're a comic book fan, you might see it in this way. Chapters 1 through 6 are the dark night, right? It's vivid, it's the city, it's gritty, you get stories, you get narrative. And then chapters 7 through 12 are kind of like watching Doctor Strange, right? It's kind of these vivid pictures and images and these colors that are otherworldly, if you will. Now, I know some of us like that more than maybe the Dark Knight, and that's good for you because guess what? We're going to go through them both as we look at Daniel, and that's going to be exciting. So if you were worried that we're going to get to the apocalyptic literature, good news. We're going to do it, and it's going to be exciting and fun. I'm not looking forward to it very much. David might not be either. It's not the easiest thing to preach, but we're going to be doing both as we go through Daniel together. Well, also, you have to realize that Babylon is a specific kingdom that's risen to power over the Assyrian kingdom in the 6th century to reign for just maybe just a little period of time. But this reign just kind of was seared into Israelite history, into who they were. And we see that Babylon, through Scripture, represents more than just this nation at this time. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the prophets. We see it at the end of the Bible in Revelation. That Babylon is a symbol of judgment towards God's people 
It's also a symbol of corruption in the world. It's also seen as a powerful force that wars against God. Babylon symbolizes these things. I guess if I could put it the best way, it's kind of how us Wisconsinites think about the Chicago Bears, right? The Bears represent everything wrong with living outside of Wisconsin, right? Oh, man, I had to say it today, didn't I? Yes, there's clapping. Yes, I know. Sorry, Dustin. Yes, all those things. Maybe that will give you some images. That's the image, the hatred that they have, the warring that they have. That is what the Israelites see as Babylon. And many times it might be hard for us to see how hard it is for them. But as we look at this passage, we're going to see the difficulties that these Israelites experienced and why this traumatizing experience would sear into their mind the idea of Babylon representing this foreign nation and foreign force throughout their history. We need to be reminded Israel is God's chosen people. That God has made promises to his people. That their people would be as great as the stars in the sky. That they would be given a land milk flowing with milk and honey. That they would be given a king that would have no end. A kingdom that would be everlasting. These were amazing promises made by Yahweh to his people in Israel. And for 700 years after coming out of Egypt in the land, these promises, right, have shown themselves and they've seen them. Especially for Judah, they've held on in these 700 years. Even though the southern and northern kingdom divided, the northern kingdom split away from the southern kingdom, and then 150 years earlier, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom called Israel. Then a hundred years before this story, we saw that Assyria surrounded Jerusalem to attack them. But God, through his provision, was able to save Jerusalem. And Judah held out strong. So through all the things that have happened around them, the people of Judah that the story is talking about, they have held strong. They have seen that God is faithful. They have been unstoppable. And that is why from verse 1, this is an amazing tragedy and shocking. Here, the descendant of King David, this kingdom that God promised would have no end, is deposed by this foreign king, Nebuchadnezzar. Twenty years later, the monarchy will fall by Babylon as they execute the kings or take them into exile in Babylon. And this would have been shocking to them. And then the symbols of their wealth, right? These are these things that they've collected over time in the temple. They are being dragged out and they were put into Babylonian captivity into the, the houses of their foreign gods. And this was a symbol of nations and what they would do to show that our God is more powerful than your God. To see all this wealth taken out of Judah and then taken to Babylon. It would be as if a foreign nation came to the United States, deposed our president, put someone in 
that they wanted to reign and then took our Constitution and just pillaged the Smithsonian and whatever and dragged it off to their land. The images of that would just be mind-blowing. But here's the thing. Even though kings are taken, the lands are taken, trophies are taken, there is something that hits even deeper. The ruin of a future people. The majority of the beginning talks about the best and the brightest of Judah. Specifically, teenagers. It's written in the annals of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And what they would do is they would take kids age 14 to 17 for three years to train them in their ways to learn their culture. This is the way that they would destroy cultures and civilizations, that they would end up learning their culture. Also, they would make it so they're not able to reproduce. Many argue, as uh, Josephus in, in church history, and as we see in Jeremiah, that I will make your people eunuchs in foreign lands. That these people brought into exile, these teenagers, might have been made eunuchs by these people so that they would not have allegiances to who they were married to or children that would follow in their ways. And then they would show them the glories of their own kingdom, of the Babylonian kingdom, putting them in the palace, showing them the food and all these things to say, here is the better way to live. Here is the better kingdom. So their feelings of Jerusalem or their past would be wiped away and they would say, this is how we should now live. And also we will show that to our own people. And then they were given new names. You have to realize the very names of the people with their identity, that these names like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they come from the names of God, of Yahweh, Elohim. And now the new names they are given are of Babylonian gods, of Marduk and Nebo. So their very identity, their very name is marked by Babylonian culture. It has all been stripped away. John Calvin says it right. The design of the king was to lead these youths to adapt the custom of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that they might not have anything in common with the chosen people. What is left for Judah? You've taken our king. You've taken our land. You've taken our youth. This is what makes us Israel. Where is the promise of the covenant? We are so far from home. What is going to be of us? Have you ever been so discouraged of where you've been sent? You wonder if anything good can come from being in that place? You're in a job with people that you wonder, can I continue to work with these people? Maybe the gossip, the office politics, the pressure is too much. You're going to school, maybe. An environment that's very difficult. 
with peers that might think different than you. You're taught things different than what you believe. There's people around you that just don't understand who you are and how you were made. Or maybe over the past few years, you wonder about the nation that you're in. You can't even recognize what's happened to America. The violence, the lifestyles, the leaders, the signs my neighbors put up in their yard. What has happened to my nation? Maybe your own house. (laughs) Maybe you think, I've never thought I'd be in this place. My current relationship with my spouse. Being stuck with the kids all day. I feel like even in my own house, I'm living in exile. Maybe your season of life. Your kids are outside of your house. Your health is so debilitating. The time with your spouse has just changed and the relationship is different. You feel even in your own season of life, you are in exile. This is the turbulence that we see and we live with as we're in Daniel. As the people of Jerusalem are sent into exile. And in the first seven verses, what Daniel is trying to show us and trying to shock us in is there, is there any hope? Is there any way out? We have to understand when you read Daniel, it's not written to the people in exile at that time. It was written to the people that are post-exilic, the people returning back to the land. And this post-exilic people were again in a nation in ruins. They had no king. They also were in a place where they had warring nations that were just plucking off land and people when they wanted to. They were wondering, what do we do in that kind of situation? And then it's also written to us through time at the chur- as the church. That we wonder, you know, where is God through church history? Pagan Rome, the plagues, wars, poverty. Feeling as the church foreign in this world. Daniel can even hit us in this time. I call this staring at the ceiling moments. Uh, maybe it's just this is what is vivid in my mind. That first night at camp, right, where I'm laying on my bunk and looking up at the ceiling going, what am I doing here? I'm away from home. I don't know anyone in my cabin. Some of them smell weird. And I'm like, I have to be here for however long, a week, two weeks, a month. God, why am I here? You have moments like that? And it makes sense. That in those environments, through that pressure, our thinking, our beliefs, our truth, our worldview, dare I say our theology, our very view of God gets skewed. 
And this is what we can say sometimes in these moments, this skewed thinking. God's not able to work in this kind of system and environment. God works better when I'm in a more comfortable environment and I'm more at ease. If I change my setting, then God will meet me. Since God can't be present here, I might as well play by their rules or make up my own so I can survive. And what do we do? We can become angry, bitter. We can give up. It's too hard. I'm just going to be like these people. It's too hard. It's too much change. It's too difficult. There's no way. This is the beauty of this book. That there's hope. No matter where you are, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what culture you're in, whatever place you're in, God is there. He's not surprised. He's the king over it all. And he is faithful to fulfill his promises to his people, no matter the situation. Here's the thing. You might have looked at these first seven verses. I did many times when I read this. And I overlook a very key thing in verse 2. Let's look, shall we? Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the great Babylonian power. These are all under God's reign. He is the king. He is the one that orchestrates things for his providence, for his ways, for his glory. Shouldn't be surprising for the Israelites, right? Leviticus 26 says, if you do not follow me, if you go after other gods, you know what I will do? I will scatter you among the nations. And this is what has happened. Jeremiah says the same, that you will be sent in to Babylon for your rebellion. In fact, this is the intriguing thing that Jeremiah says. The remnant, those that will preserve the Lord will actually be the ones sent to Babylon. The ones that will not be faithful are those that will be left in Jerusalem or sent to Egypt. In fact, it is those that are sent to a foreign nation, those sent to learn their ways, those that are persecuted and suffer in those places, those are the ones that will actually preserve Israel. I will use them to show my glory. See, that is a very contrary thing to what Israelites thought. It's a very contrary thing to what we think is natural, right? If we have our land, if we have our kings, if we have our treasures, then we will be okay. Then we will be preserved. 
But God is saying, no, it is not treasure, it is not land, it is not kings that preserve you. It is relationship with me that will carry you through and what makes you everlasting. See, in fact, it is in the exile that they were reminded of what made them unique. It was in the exile that they were reminded that the God, Yahweh, of them is forever and over all kings and all kingdoms. I think there's an application here. God sometimes takes us out of our safe environments so we would see where our true security lies. See, Jerusalem thought when they were still in the land, if we surround ourselves with comfort or we surround ourselves with other armies, then God is there. And what's showing is here is that you get out of the environment that you thought was going to bring you security and I can show you where true peace is. It is when they were in exile that they saw that God is the one that preserves them. Not their own treasures, not their own security, not their own safety. So this is easy to say. And as a nation right now, and in our own country, in our own as people, I... I just get this feeling that many of us are anxious. We're anxious, and it makes sense because we see the changes that are happening all around us. And many of us say, let's just get back to where we were, and then there will be security, and then there will be safety. But maybe we need our Babylonian moment, that we would not run back to those things, but instead we would run to the King of Kings, the one that truly brings us peace and brings us home. So maybe rather than getting a passport, boarding up your windows, hiding your kids, all those things that many times we think we should do, that we should live in this place, And know that God is still here in the hardest environments. And it's actually in those places he's working in us to see that he is good. It's still not fun, though. It's still difficult. Think about the people of Israel as they went off to Babylon. Where is this everlasting kingdom you promised us? Where is our land? Where is the promise of us being a future people? I was reading something that Colin Hansen said recently, and this is what he said about the book of Daniel. As God's son, Jesus Christ, wasn't dragged kicking and screaming from his home 
at the Father's right hand, he came to Babylon willingly. He came to rescue us. He endured exile so that all who repent of their sins and believe in him could go home. Here is the promise. The promise fulfilled. Jesus is the one that is the king that will have a kingdom that will not ever end. Jesus is the one that prepared a home and a place for us that will be everlasting. Jesus is the one that put us in a family that we would be called sons and daughters. Here was an eternal king that didn't just go from Israel to Babylon, that went from heaven to earth. That didn't just go to Babylon to live, but came to earth to die. See, Christianity speaks the longing that all of us have. This world is difficult. Many times we feel alone and alienated, like exiles. But Christianity says this, there is one that entered into that environment, that took on something greater than Babylon, that took on our sin, so that we could have a home, and is there that allows us to trust in God and where he sends us, to proclaim that the king has come over this whole situation, and we can live in that peace. I hope you will join us as we continue to go through this book of Daniel. That as you think of places as you live in your workplace, your schools, living in this community, that we would see ways that we should live in this Babylon, in this world, and that we should know we do not need to fear, we do not need to worry, we do not need to be anxious. Because we have a king that rules over it all. And we can walk with him. And we can actually not be in disdain towards Babylon. But we can work towards the goodness of this city and of our country.